Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is episode 51, Act 1, Rabab Gazul, Name, Listen, Witness, recorded December 5th, 2021. So damn tired of waiting on a perfect A plus B. The one size fits all prudent kids all screaming about irrevocability. Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches, and fight our own way free. Cause the rules don't lie, but they don't apply to people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Now they say it's all decided, all divided, all laid out. And the pushcart man with a three-part plan can't understand what you're shouting about. But when the past they plow, the lives allowed are the only roads you can see. Just remember who walls were built to fall for people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Hey, hey, TA audience. Welcome to Teaching Artistry Podcast. This podcast is researched, recorded, and produced on the unceded lands, water, and air stewarded by the Canarsie and Muncie Lenape peoples in what is colonially known as Brooklyn, New York. Thanks for listening and thanks for being a part of our global community. Invite your peeps, colleagues, and friends to join our community and subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and head over to teachingirishry.org to access episodes, guest bios, our video series, merchandise, and more. Teaching Irishry Podcast is supported by Filling the Well, a new podcast from Arts Midwest, created to nourish, provoke, and inspire artists and arts leaders. In this five-part series, hear from creative change makers as they share their takes on how to shift power dynamics, avoid burnout, build authentic community, share resources, and advocate for support. With each episode, you'll find links to explore these ideas further and act in your community. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or check out artsmidwest.org slash fillingthewell. Have you ever met someone by chance and just knew there was something special and synergistic about your connection with them? This is how I felt when I met Rebab. It was through a program being developed uh, in 2019 for participatory artists in Wales. And this session was headed up by Rianne Hutchings, um, whom you can uh, learn more about that program from Rianne herself. Uh, in episode 27, Act 1, as a lead-in conversation into the Micah Wiggins interview. So, I have known Rebab for three years, and yet literally spent 48 to maybe 60 hours with her in person at this retreat. Um, Yet, over that time, we have been developing a lovely friendship and collegiality. And Rebab is someone I strive to be. Reflective, living a life of authenticity, 
naming and working toward decolonizing and all of this while while really driving forward with her heart out front. I honestly cannot be more grateful that she stepped into my life. Uh, and in this act, we learn about Rebab's work of the community-based organization for which she is the founder, Gentle Radical. Big questions she's asking of herself and that work, as well as her upbringing and experience as an immigrant in the UK. Here is episode 51, act one, Kribab Ghazul, name, listen, witness. All right. Hello. Hello. Welcome. (laughs) Oh, hello, Courtney. So good to be here. Uh, Welcome to Teaching Artistry. Um, This podcast, as you said, you've listened, you said. Yeah, I've listened to a few. I'm impressed at how many, yeah, what a what a landscape of episodes that it is. Ooh, a landscape. I like that. Um, you know, I think I was saying before we started recording, I was saying that you know the the podcast has evolved with me and in, in the types of questions that I'm asking. And um, you uh, you have actually, I think you and your work have a lot to do with how things have shifted in terms of the conversations that we're having here. Um, so yeah, the podcast is, is really focused, continues to focus on celebrating artists, but also really examining, um, uh, equity in arts and culture. And I'm really excited to learn more about your journey, um, both in community and participatory arts. And, uh, you used a word earlier that I loved, um, social healing justice practice. Is that what you said? Is that how you call it? You said something that I was like, ooh, what is that? Um, but just in, in general, just like in the pursuit of, of healing and justice. Healing um, justice, yeah, yeah. Yeah, healing justice, yeah, through art. So are you ready to go? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm just really happy to be here. And I don't really do these very often. But I'm really, it's a real honor to be doing it with you because I, I just have, you know, so much love and respect for everything you're doing. So I want to send it back, echo it back, echo back all the important work you're doing. So yeah, I am ready and I'm alongside. Excellent. So we just had a little tete-a-tete, but let's, let's share what, how are you doing? How are your loved ones? Um, And also where are you based? Mm. I'm based in a city called Cardiff in a neighborhood called Riverside. Cardiff is the capital of Wales in the UK and I've lived here since I was since 1993 so a good while um, and in terms of how we are uh, we're okay we're not doing bad you know I mean there's a lot of nuance to that uh, generally people are okay I think so many families have been in, impacted by COVID and um, our family too recently, but um, generally everyone is fine. And in terms of friends and colleagues, again, lots of ongoing impacts, uh, but a lot of people supporting each other and and kind of being there really to kind of mm-hmm. kind of um, guide our, guide guide each other through all of this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm good. Yeah. I'm really I'm really I'm healthy as well, and I'm really grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so nice to see you. <laughs> so you and I met um, by way of uh, Rianne Hutching, um, who at the time worked for 
uh, uh, artwork Cymru. And um, yeah, and um, I think I met her at the teaching International Teaching Arts Conference when it was in Edinburgh. And I, myself and my colleague Lindsay presented on um, this work that we developed uh, with other other um, um, American-based uh, arts educators around um, looking at teaching artist pathways and how to do some career goal setting, career tracking, reflecting, and thinking about how we can continue to expand not only as art artists ourselves, but within the professionalizing the field. And um, Rianne sort of said, I would like to bring you to Wales <laughs> at that point, like right after the session. And it was like, okay. And then maybe, I think it was maybe two years later, she was like, I'm ready. We're ready to bring you to Wales. <laughs> and so we spent about a year um, after that planning. And I came in, two, in November, 2019. Mm, I remember. So it was uh, like, essentially two years ago um yeah. yeah and and do you want to explain the program from your perspective yeah I suppose at the time how, I can't remember how many of us there was maybe eight of us and yeah. it was about developing um I suppose kind of mentoring and coaching um possibilities and and training for us as mentors and coaches um for particularly participatory artists in wales so i think there's often a lot of support you know for visual artists in different ways but perhaps there was that thinking that how do we develop and evolve more support-based kind of practices and mentoring practices and coaching practices around people particularly who are working in contexts of people you know um, participation engagement work um, so it was a really I, I didn't actually funnily enough I wasn't really entirely sure what to expect of course I think we knew you were going to be there but I'd not met you um, but rem I really remember that weekend as just really touching time actually I felt like it was really something there was something very you know humanly connecting which is what we're always looking for right within these whatever we call it like training or um a course you know we want these human humanly connecting experiences and I felt that with everyone but I really felt like just such a it was a real moment meeting you and I felt like the holding of that space just felt really beautiful and gentle and tender and enabled us all to feel that connection together you know um yeah and that yeah was really and yeah. our conversations then flowed and, and like yes. since then, right? Exactly. With a massive exactly. gap for me because I was so hopeless at getting back to your email. And as I am, don't take it personally, this is a common occurrence. <laughs> but then actually we then started having these like, yeah, I don't know about you, but you know, under lockdown, like I was already using voice notes on WhatsApp, but it just like went wild. I was like, mm. that's so much of my connectivity with friends and colleagues and keep keeping abreast of how they are and kind of almost like our mental well-being and emotional health often was in this frame of voice noting each other and just mm -hmm. checking in on each other and sharing some of those journeys and I know that kind of like crossed over into some of our communication yeah. as well which is so nice it was really nice I feel I I um so I just want to say that the and uh I did actually interview 
Rianne um, after, like directly after that session. So if people want to learn more about it, they can listen to that episode with Rianne. I, I forget what episode it is, but I'll mention it in the, I'll mention it at some place and like maybe the intro. But um, what I recall in terms of zoning in on you um, and that, that week, I remember we picked you up. We took a, we drove up together with another, with another colleague of yours and um, what I didn't, what I couldn't understand fully, um, and learned later was that, you know, everybody was from Wales, but they were from different parts of Wales and had different and didn't necessarily all know each other, though some people did. And so there was something really nice about this, like bringing together of artists in the same, um, region with, with some commonalities and, and then figuring out, you know, how can we how can we work together how can we support what are our strengths um throughout the retreat and then um we always had meals together like that first night we had like wine and cheeses and hearth and you know and we had soups and so we we were we were like a little family for two days um and and i remember the first night i was re- i was i was tired because <laughs> i had just flown in i think the night before maybe the night before or two nights so i was still sort of jet lagged but i was tired but i just thought oh everybody's so happy to see each other that's re- this is this is really nice how can i maximize on this in the in the subsequent sessions that i have with them like how can i continue to help them build communities sort of where my brain was and what i what i wasn't necessarily clicked into was how i was I was a part of that community. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I felt like it was my responsibility to help to, to moderate and facilitate opportunities for community building. But what ended up happening is I ended up also weaving myself into the community itself. So having a connection with you, having a connection with Rianne, um, and I'm Facebook friends with most people who are, who are there. So we, you know, I see, you know, and can celebrate the wins of other people that I've spent only two days with <laughs> and feel really connected to. Um, and then to take it further, yeah, I was like, I want to talk to Rebab more because she's asking, you were asking me questions that I was like, whoa, whoa, this woman is so intelligent. And she's, she's phrasing things in ways that like, I recognize, but I also don't recognize. So I want to know like, what's her experience? How does she see the world this way? Why does she see the world this way? You know, I was just sort of very intrigued by you and your, um, your ability to sort of like (laughs) cut through a whole bunch of like superfluous stuff and get right to the heart of things and ask really like, but why are we doing this and how to, and what is the, and you know, like, and, and what is your approach to this and that? And you just kept challenging me to think more, more meaningfully about how I do the work that I do. And that was in two days. <laughs> well, it's so funny when we hear these things about ourselves, it's very rare that we recognize these things about ourselves, but mm-hmm. it's so good to hear it and take that in. And I feel like, yeah, without just echoing back for the sake of it, like I definitely feel, I, I think, you know, we can respond to people in that way when we feel like we're we're in a shared place of inquiry with other people. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you're asking so many of those questions, you know, which is why I want to know how you're doing it and how you're approaching it. You know, that's where those questions come from often, like yeah. people we, we feel are in the same zone and are trying to really dig deeper, you know. So, yeah, it was... Um, we were well met in that yeah. moment, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. yeah. 
I, I agree. We were well met. And, and I think how we finally figured out what our best meth- best method of communication was, was a journey in, in and of itself. But I wanted to pull out the thread that you, you mentioned about how we have been trying, you know, working to find our, our communities and, and ways to continue to stay connected, even though physically distanced we are. Um, and so that was a, a top of a conversation um, just recently with a group of my friends where we have a text thread, uh, you know, so the group is talking to each other and being funny or, or need to vent or, you know, something is going on. And then there's the individual connections. And for me, some of my platforms that I love the most are WhatsApp, whether it's through message or voice app or voice message or notes and Marco Polo. So I can see video and I'm just rambling. I just ramble and I'm like, these are all the thoughts in my head now. And then I'm like, call me, call me back. Send me a message. Bye. And some people are like, I have to, I have to like take notes. So I can respond to the the things that you say because I do, and then I'm like, oh, I see. I could actually do more <laughs> notes and smaller that are s- smaller and let you take your time with them, which is what you and I do. Like we can yeah. go on and on, and like eight minutes later, it's like, oh, this is really long. I'm gonna stop here. <laughs> <laughs> I know the note. I had to start doing that. I realized like, oh, these like quite extensive, you know, sharings with people. Like, yeah, I'd always have a notebook. Right, I don't want to forget because I'm not, my memory's not good. And like, mm-hmm. I can't, so I'm like, mm, I really wanted to respond to that. Well, oh, that's so interesting. I want to, I need to like comment on that. Or so, yeah, the note, the notebook now sits alongside the voice note listening. So, yeah, yeah. these that's are the great. strategies, the tools of the trade. Mm-hmm. So, um, so can you talk to us about your company, um, Gentle Radical? What's the mission? Um, how did it start? What What's the most recent um, work that you've been doing? Okay. Well, Gentle Radical, I suppose, began in 2017, like late 2016. So really properly, we started in 2017. And um, I'll be honest, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, we, we had a mission, but I think it was it was broadly this kind of for want of different language and I know we have to constantly kind of be careful about our language and break down what we mean but I suppose this kind of like a a kind of some kind of vision or some kind of remit around decoloniality what does decoloniality mean in the work and I think for me as the founder um, as the person who kind of had been thinking for four or five years like I really I need to set up an organization or that felt like the next logical step. I think that came from a couple of things in my life that I'd experienced for a while. One was this sense of, you know, a lot of um, a lot of cultural engagement work and a lot of the spaces around cultural engagement work involved artists like myself, freelance artists, social practice artists, being classically parachuted into a community and then like six months later a year later if you're lucky being parachuted out again without any say so of those people that you've been working with um and apart from the fact that so much of that was problematic uh in terms of like the pace at which you need to get to know people and build trust and before you know it like uh, the you know you're out or the pressures to deliver within very unrealistic frames um but increasingly i found those processes really extractive and they sort of felt like colonial in the sense that you know an institution would go in um 
the means of going in and building a project was an individual artist often delivering something. Of course, the institution got its its reports and its documentation and its narratives and its you know headline experiences, but there was really no agency or power on behalf of those people that we've been engaging in, in in you know whatever ways well ways it felt relatively artificial to me. But of course, you throw yourself at making that meaningful. Like that's 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 right. primary in your in your interest to make it meaningful. So however meaningful and deep that process went, it was cut short at the point where the outside institution, if you like, decided because of course the funding decides. And that, in the end, to me, I I kind of was so frustrated and would critique that so much, but at the same time was complicit within that process. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to be complicit within those processes anymore. And there was a couple of projects, one in particular, I was there for like just over a year doing residency in this small town not far from Cardiff. And it just felt like I was grief stricken to leave. And it just didn't make sense to leave. It was like, the, this is where the work is really starting to be profound, embedded, you know, People are pushing um, agendas within the town centre that that felt critical. Having dialogues with the council, you know, we were all really. And then it ended, right? At that point, it finished because the the funders and the the the, the partners involved were like, "This is how long it lasts." And and I remember thinking to myself, "I could really just I could do I could be here for the next five years easily. Like, why am I yeah. stopping?" What and why are we all stopping? But we we had to. And the other part of gentle radical. So the first thing is like, I think I wanted to set up an organization that didn't do that, that kind of really could find other ways, alternatives to what felt like extractive um, processes. And the mm. other piece was around, I suppose, different areas of my life uh, over many, many years, you know, since early 20s, which were around political activism and different engagements within that, um, particularly kind of anti-war activism or later on like anti-austerity activism. Mm -hmm. So there was that part to my life and I'd become quite disillusioned with political activism and campaigning in different ways. Then there was kind of cultural work and cultural practice and social practice. Then since my kind of mid late twenties, I've been involved in community development work, working with grassroots communities, particularly minority ethnic communities in South Wales. And so there was, and then there's what I would call spiritual activism, you know, the work of the spirit and, and faith-based um, work, you know, which was a big part of my life. And I'd always felt that all of these things were separate. And in my mind, they weren't separate. Right. They, they were together. So healing and spirituality was connected to liberation and political struggle and change, was connected to art and culture and how it can be in service to justice, was connected to communities and people. And I didn't want to, and what I felt was in political contexts or campaigning contexts, social justice, sometimes it did not feel like there was room for the spirit and for our own personal transformation within art and culture it felt like we are not doing the work of reparations and social justice. You know, we are doing that, we're doing diversity and equalities work in ways that feel token and um, short term. And, and sometimes within spiritual contexts, I felt there wasn't a clear enough um, social justice or, or political remit, you know. So, every, you know, I wanted a space, I wanted to probably without realizing it selfishly, I wanted to create a space 
in which I could hang out with people who felt those things were connected and then make cultural work from that space. Amazing. Um, there's a, there's a lot in there and I'm realizing that um, maybe it would be helpful to either hear an example of, of a kind of uh, of how you work in a community, if you can give us some specifics. Um, what's the approach uh, if you're trying, if the goal is to um, decolonize um, and not, you know, extract from the community, but actually embed in what, what are some of the strategies to do that? And, and, you know, if you have examples of some, sometimes when it works, it's worked so well, and that's something that you're trying to continue to replicate or, or, and by replicate, I don't mean churn. I mean, um, in terms of the practice itself, not, does that make sense? Um, and, and, you know, if there's been challenges, you know, what, if you're willing to share those, like what, what has come up as a challenge, um, how does it get addressed? How does it get worked through? Because I think one of the things that I struggle with sometimes is I feel like I understand what people are saying when they talk about community-based or justice-based work. And then I wonder, but do I? <laughs> do I actually? So I'm trying to get a little bit underneath the terminology and the words and understand what is the actual approach? What is the actual um, yeah, uh, uh, approach, practices, how do they need to shift accordingly? And I don't even know what I'm saying ex exactly, but I'm sure that things need to shift. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm really, yeah, I suppose the first thing to say is how much of a, you know, we are not experts. We are still very much in a learning, unfolding, emergent journey with this. Mm -hmm. um, then actually, if, if I'm really honest, COVID, I think there was work that we were beginning to do in 2019 that was absolutely moving towards, I suppose, a kind of model that I can talk about in a moment that I, I, I suppose we started to feel was a model that we wanted to work with around an antidote, you know, to mm -hmm. these uh, temporary kind of token processes. And then actually COVID hit. So there's a kind of in some ways we're like, I would say, certainly with Gentle Radical, we are we are still trying to get back to a place where we can start doing that work but just to say in terms of gentle radical spaces yes we are perhaps on one level it's not so much the um it, who who is turning up to our work is really critical so who is present who are the participants who are the audiences is like a big question for us so probably where we place ourselves is this sense of like, um, how do we make the marginal and the margins our mainstream? So we're not necessarily working. Our, our first port of call is not, you know, mainstream contemporary arts, arts spaces or um, uh, cultural art centers or institutions. Because actually those spaces are engaged in, they don't need, you know, they don't need, they don't need us, but like they have their audiences. Um, so we consciously, start at the margins and that that often means place and that often means people that often means literally spaces and community spaces that are used by um so many groups and communities who are you know in various ways historically routinely excluded from mainstream cultural space um, but it's also doing the careful work of 
reaching like there's this term in the UK I don't know if you've like got the same term like hard to reach groups it's like a really problematic deeply problematic yeah. term because yeah. the the assumption is that you as a group or as a community are hard to reach as opposed to institutional cultures epically failing to find ways of prioritizing the needs and just figuring out the strategies to make sure that those who've been historically alienated, disenfranchised, marginalized are not perpetually on the receiving end of that neglect, you know. Um, mm -hmm. But nevertheless, I suppose for us, one of the strategies around that, um, which I think we have always maintained within Gentle Radical and probably within my own work as, an, as a sort of freelance artist, community worker, social practice practitioner, um, the strategy that we built on often is what I would call perpetual or permanent outreach. So most of the work that often happens within cultural engagement programs is you have the outreaching at the beginning. Hey, we need to go and talk to people or turn up to these spaces in which different community interest groups are meeting or, you know, in our case in Gentle Radical, we'll literally knock on doors in our area. And outreach is considered something that you, you kind of, like basically people do it at the beginning of a project to get people in. You know, you talk to mm -hmm. the right people, you work through certain networks, you know, all the recommendations about who you should speak to or who might be interested, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. You do that stuff. And then it's almost like we stop outreaching. Why? Like, why do we do that? Mm -hmm. And we would argue that actually so many of the people we work with, of course, some of them are hooked up to social media and all the rest, but a good bunch of them are not. They're not necessarily active on Twitter or Instagram or whatever. So we have to literally go and physically visit people. And particularly if we're talking about older generations. Um, and, then, and then what does it mean to be a constant, um, aim to be a, a regular presence around people who you want to invite and keep saying, you know, this space of welcome is open to you. So the barriers that so many of our audiences are experiencing do not disappear overnight. As we know, those barriers run deep, those inequities run deep. So just knocking on someone's door or sending someone, you know, a flyer or having a chat at a coffee morning or something that you turn up to in the community doesn't remove those barriers. So we believe you have to, the outreach has to be perpetual, has to be constant. And in my experience, for example, one of the projects within Gentle Radical is our grassroots pop-up community film club. And that was running for, been running for 16 years now because I was running that project way before Gentle Radical. So it just came mm. under the umbrella of Gentle Radical. But I would sometimes outreach and see someone um, at different, kind of events or community activities or events, maybe up to like seven or eight times over a two year period before and chat to them before eventually they might turn up to one of our mm -hmm. um, women only grassroots, you know, community film events because it took them that much time to have the space or the headspace or the childcare, even though we provided free creche. It takes time for people to feel art and cultural activity is something they can come towards because they have so many other competing needs and demands in their life, which make daily life, as we know, quite difficult for so many people. Um, so that is, a, that is an underpinning as a kind of model of 
practice. And then, of course, you go, well, how does that work? Because what often happens with an individual person outreaching is if they work in your organization, if they happen to leave, they take all of those relationships and right. all of those connections. Mm -hmm. So what we were starting to work with or starting to think about in 2019 really was we wanted to start almost rolling out or testing a model of perpetual outreach where every single person in the organization is involved in outreaching. Mm. You kind of democratize that process. So whether it's me, like technically a director, the director of the organization, whether mm. it's people who are doing the finance or doing a little bit of marketing and bear in mind, we all work part-time. We, we are not a, Oh. We don't have the means to kind of, you know, the, the, the resource necessarily to all of us be working, you know, full time. So, um, so how do across a month, how does everyone be involved in like, even if it's a day a month of outreaching, so everyone has one got their ears to the ground, is involved in community, mm. and is listening and having these conversations. And then how can we also have a, a collective conversation about how that is informing our work? Mm -hmm. um, so that's a context for Gentle Radical. And then I suppose there's in our work, um, certainly me working as an artist pre-Gentle Radical, and of course I continue to work as an artist within the company. Um, but I think some of the strategies for me, particularly working with young people, have always been to try and almost work with a kind of resistance to expectations about product pace and delivery mm. and to do this work of trying to build a space where you are on a joint collective journey of discovery with these young people and where you're trying to enable them to come into the space of um, really listening and developing this muscle of reflection around creative practice so that the reflective practice enables them to make the next set of decisions or the next set of creative like um yeah decisions in a way with you mm. um, and somehow it's about establishing that reflective process so that they feel ah, oh, this that, that really it does unfold as their process um, but that means you know maybe maybe having to be quite uh, direct at the beginning I remember one project I was working with and I think um, they hadn't worked with visual arts they'd done a lot of theatre and I remember at the beginning one of the young people said hey uh, can we do x and they kind of like had seen something on YouTube and it was like woo I think this is really cool can we do that and I was like well no we're not going to do that because there's no like like I had to sort of put that in a way that was okay but mm. actually what I wanted us to do and like I felt my responsibility was to really host and guide a process where they discovered actually what their deepest creative inclinations were through exposure mm. to ideas and processes mm -hmm. and and that's what eventually happened but sometimes there's a sort of like there's a they, you have to like they navigate these right. tensions right? Mm. and I think with young people there's always an expectation of like do what the young people want right they wanted this, so do it. And I think as adults, whilst being very careful about our about our adult supremacy and, and thinking we know what's right for young people, there's also 
part of our responsibility is to enable them, particularly young people who haven't historically had access to those chances to explore and evolve through creativity, to go, you know, it's, it's in you and it's a lot deeper than you think. So let's go on that journey, you know? So you said that, you know, once pre-COVID or 2019, you were starting to build this model. And if I'm understanding correctly, we are, we are not, when we are starting conversations with a community and I'm, I don't know why I'm saying we, you, <laughs> um, but when you were, were having that conversation, we don't necessarily have a product endpoint in mind yet. We're trying to discover who, who this community is, uh, what do we like, and we're, we're maybe dabbling or learning new and different ways to express ourselves, and eventually something's going to start to uh, stick. Is that is that what I'm understanding? Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's the underpinning is that definitely when I, as an artist, have worked with people, it's tr- particularly young people, it's about trying to really have a process-based Mm-hmm. approach which is not just me and my process but no, like what's yeah. their process based mm-hmm. how do they how can they also how can they like I think again going back to that example of that project I think someone asked me right at the beginning of the project one of the youth workers actually what is what are we doing what are we moving towards what but mm-hmm. they want to know what the what the end result looks like and I kind of mm-hmm. have to try and put people at ease that we don't know yet we're, we're yeah. gonna yes there's a there's a frame and there's a bunch of stuff we're going to explore but also a lot of it we don't know because that's going to unfold with gentle radical there's a lot of different projects i can talk about but just to give an example of maybe a couple i suppose one of the projects that was very responsive under lockdown and with covid was this project called doorstep revolution which kind of in as far as we could tried to model some of this outreaching work. So we couldn't meet people anymore. We couldn't run our events. We couldn't run our our public engagement activities, um, which is a big part of what we do, a big part of hosting and gathering, particularly people who do not perhaps encounter each other all the time. So um, living in a diverse city like Cardiff, you have, I don't know, over 70 languages probably spoken in the city. it's great that we talk about the diversity of the city, but like that only has a value if diverse groups are encountering each other, right? If like we are cross-fertilizing people and communities and neighborhoods and audiences. Mm -hmm. And at many of our cultural spaces, that mixing of audiences is, it's very, it's very limited. It's very narrow. Mm -hmm. So we couldn't do that work. And that's a big part of our work. And I think we do that quite well. Um, So one of the projects we worked with was called Doorstep Revolution, where we started probably like so many people and organizations, um, we wanted to develop, I suppose, a sound archive, a kind of oral archive of of our neighborhood under lockdown. But we basically did that through literally knocking on doors, like many, many streets in our neighborhood. And we invited people into a safe conversation. So it was either online, it was on Zoom, or it was by phone, or for those people who wanted safely, we could do that, you know, Mm -hmm. later on when lockdown kind of um, eased a little bit, we met um, socially distanced in the park, you know. Um, And really, we just wanted kind of to find out one what people's experiences of lockdown were but also as a national lottery 
community fund funded project, which is a, a, a program of a huge program of lottery funding for multiple projects across the UK every year. The strand of that funding was a question invited organizations like our own. So I think 52 organizations were funded to do this kind of work across the UK. The primary question was like, how are communities thinking about the formation of community and future ideas of community mm. as a result of lockdown and as a result of COVID. So it was really kind of, we wanted to explore the radical imagination with people. Um, and the point about that project was, although it's had many stops and starts, I mean, it was, you know, like probably you've experienced, like we begin, oh my God, there's a holdup, there's another lockdown, oh, this is happening, that's happening. People in our own organization are being hugely impacted. We, you know, there's mm. a, a kind of it's a it's a it's an iterative process and you're trying to like just hold hold the space you know for the unfolding but actually that project I suppose in our minds is that those conversations that conversation is so key to our work those conversations will throw up possibilities of new work will throw up possibilities of curation and programming that is responsive to some of the things that people are talking about or raising um, and the cross-fertilizing of those conversations. And then the next stage of that project is really we want to be able to, in a way, make surface some of the content and the suggestions and the aspirations and then make those available to the neighbors in the community. So we begin to have a conversation about what some of these ideas and some of these proposals and then start thinking, okay, well, how do we build projects on the back of that? So for us, the conversation and the archive of conversations is completely um, central to how we mm. then build future projects in a way. That's That was very helpful, thank you. I, being able to sort of um, visualize an actual program is, is, is incredibly helpful. And I think, you know, there, there is something to be said about what we can learn from how we've had to adapt, shift, change, our, uh, either our approaches or practices or the nature of the work that we do um, uh, because of, of the, the, uh, the pandemic. Um, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, I'd love to go. I, I want to pause this part of the conversation and go back further into your background. Um, you, you, first of all, I didn't realize that this was a part-time job <laughs> i worked full-time as of about oh gosh like a few months ago maybe six okay. months ago everyone else is part-time so it's taken maybe four and a half years to get to the point where i, I can just work for gentle radical you said that you've been in here uh in in cardiff since 1993 is that right um so where where were you born where did you come from what was your what was your upbringing and inside of that question you know how were arts a part of your your childhood yes yeah, so I, I was born in a city in the north of Iraq called Mosul M-O-S-U-L which really sadly and tragically I suppose came into became more known to people because ISIS kind of moved in and essentially the city was kind of under siege you know to ISIS this is post um the the horrors of 2003 and the invasion and the occupation in Iraq. And so I grew up in this city, Mosul, and I was there kind of pretty much on and off until I was 10. 
Um, and so I have very, it's very vivid, those memories of my childhood there. And then I think when I was 10, we were in England, we came back to England. Um, I, I, I don't know if it, there was never a sense that like we're here to settle. I think my father, who has always been a very politically astute man, sensed that the, the shift in the political situation in Iraq and Saddam Hussein was had come into power. People like my dad, who was like teaching at the university at the time, were asked to join the Ba'ath party. And I think my dad knew where he was probably going to stand on those issues, which he wasn't going to do that and that that would create problems. And, you know, we, my dad ended up doing some teaching here. And within that time, within a few months, the Iraq-Iran war broke out. And that war went on for eight years. And in that time, we ended up settling in England. And so I then kind of was permanently in England from the age of 10. And I grew up in a really like, in the north of England, mm -hmm. um, in a county called Cheshire, in like a super white environment, you know. And I suppose I... I don't think I really realized it fully, but like how much that lack of exposure to other Arab communities distanced me yet again. Like there's a kind of distancing of self in terms of your displacement from a place or in like, I wanna just own like the hugely privileged position we were in to be able to stay here. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not the violence of the kind of displacement that so many people who are literally coming as refugees or, yeah. Um, you know, asylum people seeking asylum from places like uh, from places like UK, having having had to no choice but to leave Iraq and so many other countries. So it wasn't that it was it, it was a very a far more privileged position to be in, and I that uh, never forget that fact. But I think there was a kind of you know constant. I think later on in life, like a battle with my sense of like diminishing cult cultural roots you know and mm. I think that everyone living within context of the landscape of diaspora I think that is as a strong narrative for us you know but so I grew up then in in England and and, and then one of the things that did happen um, which is really profound in a way in terms of the rest of my life journey is that in those years um, growing up as a teenager, my parents did take us to the theater. And I, you know, I suppose they had, a, I don't know if they had like a profound sense of like culture. I don't think they were like massively, like they appreciated culture. They weren't in any way involved in culture themselves, but they must've figured that taking us to see stuff was good, you know, and we'd go to these theater productions and I just had some of my most profound, um, almost like out of body experiences in these shows. Oh. And, um, I kind of like something was clicking. Like I had a, like now I would almost describe it as like, a, it sounds bizarre, but like some kind of spiritual experience, like so deeply connected to what was going on. So transported. Like I remember there was one show in particular, I can't even remember what it was. I remember needing this feeling like I don't want to leave the theater. I don't want to, I'll stay here overnight, you know, even if no one's in this space. And also I think at the time I was very, I was quite a lonely teenager mm. and spent a lot of time on my own. And so this sense of connectivity through theater just kind of really 
was really important for me. And then I started getting involved in youth theatre and um, joined a youth theatre and was doing bits of drama at school, although it wasn't massively encouraged. I went to this grammar school in England, in, in England at the time. And so I had to kind of find ways of being involved, you mm. know, in theatre stuff. But that was really the beginnings. And, and yeah, and I suppose, yeah, there's always been a kind of, that, that that tension between who you are, who you're becoming, and what you've lost and what is left behind, and the kind of the lamenting of that in a way, and 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 how I think that's always been an undercurrent and a kind of subtext to living in diaspora, and um, and how you come to terms with how you might have been, who you might have been, and how you assess what is lost, you know, compared to. The, the privilege of, of actually my incredibly relatively stable, safe set of circumstances. Like, whilst you also hold a harking back to place and culture and people that you know is like very difficult to return to now, mm. many years later. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I. Sometimes I think, oh, let me pick some pick a thread up and sort of make a connection. And there's a part of me that doesn't want to do that in this moment, even though I can find the connections, because um, that story is one I haven't heard before. That kind of story is one I haven't heard before. And so I don't want to tarnish it by having my own weird spin on things. So I'm just going to leave it there. But I, I so what I will pick up on is the... Um, you know, parents finding ways, parents with little means finding ways to inject more culture into their kids' lives and going to theater and, and feeling that same thing where I don't, I, I don't understand how everybody is, you know, doing the same choreography. I don't even know what choreography is. So I'm not saying that, you know, I'm just like, how do they know all like what to say, what to, I was, I was the kid who was like, how do they know to do that dance at the same time? How do they know? So I wanted to know what was going on in rehearsal without realizing that that's how it works. Um, yeah. And like, how, how do they sound so good? And how do they, how do they know? <laughs> um, and once I started doing theater myself, it's then things started to, to click like, Oh, we're in rehearsal and we're practicing. And so we know, but the audience doesn't know. And that's even more fun because now I have something that I get to share and see how others respond and you get a lot. And then you start to, you know, for me, it was once I started to actually do more acting in school and, and beyond, it was like, how do I build this character? How do I make this character feel real? And again, you know, with no studying or anything, the, the, this was just part of like innately how I would approach trying to figure out like, who is this person? So I can play them with, Again, not not as a kid using this language, but I'm using it now, like authenticity. And then later studying to do exactly that work that I was trying to accomplish at, you know, nine years old. Wow. Isn't that yeah. amazing? So you kind of had this retrospective experience of studying about something that you were trying to quite instinctively do when you were younger. That's mm -hmm. it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so interesting because I even... <laughs> I played a character, my 
first grade. This was the first like play I think I was in. I was either first how, when you say first grade, how old would that be? Uh, seven, I think six or seven. Wow. And I had one line in this in this uh, play. I, I did other things, but I had one actual line, and I stu- I like practiced that line. I practiced different ways to say that line. I had built a whole character, like a backstory for this character. It was actually a man. <laughs> like I had, I had created like this is this is this he has a bowler hat like he's he's wow. this that and he's really concerned about because somebody had a stomach ache and he's really concerned and he really wants to know did you have too many cookies he really wants to make sure because that could be a problem you know and I I mean I remember being at home and making my mom help me rehearse it over and over and it's like it's one line <laughs> like, I pick any one of those ways to say it <laughs> wow that sounds yeah it's interesting isn't it that sense of like responsibility that sense of like oh t- the way we take seriously uh, a kind of relatively young age this sense of this literally role that we might have but like a responsibility around this kind of work I remember I think like one of my earliest probably the earliest experience and I didn't even know it was theater was when Mm. I was eight maybe um in our houses where we lived in England um like you know you have like a little carport we call them carports where people park their cars like a little covered area yeah and I must have got some of the neighborhood kids to like do our own rendition of Little Red Riding Hood. And like, I don't even know what got that started. All I know was I was sort of facilitating as an eight-year-old, nine-year-old, that piece. And we invited the neighbors Mm -hmm. to then we like had these chairs in front of the carport and they saw it. And it was like really clunky rendition people just used to use the back alley to kind of come and enter into the carport and that was our little Mm -hmm. stage yeah and uh, what I remember is like a sense of at that age I somehow was facilitating slash wouldn't even call it directing but making sure that x had their costume and making sure that Mm -hmm. x knew y knew when to come into a certain point I think we even scripted it based on you know the the like some the story the little red riding hood story we'd had in a you know found in a book and so we had to create parts and it's really strange isn't it from that young age how we can be feeling our way through something that we later realize is a practice Mm -hmm. and has strategies and processes around it and ways and possibilities and 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 I suppose it can feel incredibly instinctive uh, you know without us even realizing what that instinct is about yeah I that that brings a memory of I lived in a house where we had this really lovely backyard and we had a little sun porch um, that was off the den and and the kitchen was like above it like there's a window that so my mom would see us playing without having to be engaged but just could see and over anyway so we used that backyard and we did the same thing where we had a whole show we had flyers there were tickets and it was it was basically a talent show so it was different scenes and some singing and dancing and we I I was the same where I was um essentially I was the I was like 
the stage manager and the curator with and with my collaborators who were creating all the different scenes and we figured the sequencing out and we and we it was full on a show um and our parents and neighbors came and watched it in this backyard and it was just it was it, i think maybe i was nine eight or nine and i just i remember taking it so seriously and and having fun but taking it very very seriously and also not really knowing you know this is you're gonna this is what you're gonna do with your life <laughs> you know um yeah i think it's i think it's interesting especially because when i when i actually studied in college and i went um i went thinking i you know i think i want to be an actor but I want more exposure to theater. And it was, it really, it really was like, let's learn all the different aspects of um, running a theater. And I took a theater management class um, to learn sort of the admin and, and that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, I started to be able to pull back connections to what I was, what I had done as a kid with these little talent shows and shows that I would put together of like, Oh, if I had funding <laughs> or if I knew how to like raise, you know, or if I was thinking about profit margins, <laughs> I would, you know, it just, I didn't, I didn't know that as a kid, but like understanding that this is a business, a business that yeah. you could actually have different kinds of jobs and different and different kinds of transferable skills across different kinds of roles within the theater. Um, yeah. So I, I love, I really love working in theater. I love the, um, I love the problem solving, the troubleshooting. I love the, like, how do we, how, what can we do that's somewhat invisible to make magic for an audience? And by magic, I don't mean like actual magic. I mean to create these worlds for us all to, to, get lost in and then think critically about and put, and then make connections back to our own lives or make connections back to the world. And, um, yeah, I just, I love theater. I love it so much. I'm really hearing that. I'm really hearing that. And it, it's funny when you were speaking about that kind of, you know, that magic and that, that sense of being so hooked into an experience, it re was reminding me of, yeah, you were talking about, I suppose, this sense of, you know, the arts being a career, which I don't think any of us, certainly I was not told that when I was young. And like, who would be told that? Like, it's a really precarious thing to go into. It's, you know, there's mm -hmm. all kinds of, and in my family, um, like, de like, you know, there was not, Never, never any strong criticism, but I know my dad's brother had this really strong sense of like, why is your son going to study? I think like my, 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 my brother is an ecologist, right? And he went to study, I can't remember, like, anyway, marine biology or something like this. And that was mm -hmm. considered like a total no-no. Why has he not studied like <laughs> law, medicine, you know? Uh, um, mm. So for me to go in the art, into the arts was like, you know, and, and so there was something about my, my that was, yeah, uh, great that my parents encouraged that. But then in Iraq, I don't really remember any strong sense of there would not have been the cultural infrastructures around mm. the kind of cultural sectors that we have now, provision for young people, provision for communities, right. you know, that, that just didn't exist. I mean, partly generationally, it was in the 70s, and also like, I suppose, where Iraq, you know, was at that time. But the thing, I absolutely remember is we had loads of um, 
like Bollywood films used to come to the Middle East, right? That was like a, a main staple of films we used to watch. And I remember a really common thing that I did as a child was um, our neighbor, my best friend as a child, she was called Rada. She was our neighbor. And of course, in the Middle East, you have a lot of flat roofs on people's houses. So we would take the steps up in her house onto the flat roof. And if I'd seen a film, I'd gone to see a film. She hadn't seen it, of course I'd have gone with my family. I would go up to her, the top of her roof. We'd sit on the roof for like maybe two hours and I would tell her blow by blow the stories like as it was unfolding in that film of every single scene that I remembered. And I would literally tell her the story of the film I'd seen. And if she'd gone to see a film, she'd do the same. And like, now I think of that, that is so bizarre to me, but also so amazing that like the idea of storytelling is at the heart of almost every single art form that that, that mm. sense of crave story. And I remember that as being, not a tedious experience, like I would be hanging on her every word and she would be mm. hanging on my every word, depending on who was doing the, the, rend the, the, the rendition of the telling right. of that, that film. Right. Yeah, so it's, it feels innate, you know, yeah. like this need to share a story. And yeah, absolutely. And to connect and yeah, I, I, yeah, I just, this is, this is why I enjoy theater i mean I, I enjoy lots of different art forms but as, in terms of what i'm passionate about that's that storytelling that asking really um, provocative questions in the form of a story that's unfolding and and sometimes having answers and sometimes new questions becoming being raised as as a story is unfolding is um thrilling to me <laughs> And I'm always, I'm so impressed because like the thing I think, the thing I think that also I love about theater is that you can't, you can do it alone, but you actually can't, you can't do theater without others and collaborating with yeah. others. And so, you know, democratizing that process actually is very interesting to me. Um, and, and, and the idea of like, leaning on the uh, I, I learned this new term recently of zones of genius and like wow. and finding where the intersections of our different zones of genius lie and how that can create some something really extraordinary as opposed to feeling competitive or uh, dictative within that creative process um, that's interest that's a, that's a new thing for that I'm trying to unpack a little bit or or better articulate over time <laughs> uh yeah yeah um i i wanna i wanna know though how how do you how do you sorry um identify as an artist mm. i i suppose now i call myself a socially engaged visual artist i mean visual artist mm -hmm. in the broadest most expansive sense i'm not working maybe as a fine artist, I'm not, you know, painting or making sculptures. I'm kind of working within a social engaged context and often working with media that really are useful for me, you know, or are useful to the process in any given context. 
And then I suppose I also now would say that gentle radical is an expanded part of that practice. Mm -hmm. So the organization and its work is another extension of my creative practice. So that involves curatorial work, that involves building programs, that involves collaboration with others, involves building partnerships, involves engagement work, and it involves the how do we center the work of justice within the whole of that piece and and mm. what does it mean to like develop the processes that are actually practicing and embedding and manifesting that work so i see that as part of my practice you know right. cultural creative practice too thank you for listening to episode 51 act one of teaching artistry with courtney j body rabab khazul name listen witness join us next time for act two this podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the director of creative content. John L. Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to the pod shop at the top of the page for merch. Twitter us at TA underscore artistry. The gram at teaching artistry with CJB. And now on YouTube, check out the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body channel and watch We Can't Go Back. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud and Spotify, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this podcast with the teaching artists in your life. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Ooh.